Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 59. I'm recording this episode on February 8th, 2022, in Austin, Texas. Before we get to the history fun, there are a couple of brief topics worth a moment. First, I want to welcome a bunch of new listeners. A couple of days ago, Walter Kern, the renowned author, critic, and all-around happy-go-lucky curmudgeon, said the nicest thing I can imagine about this podcast in a tweet to his 94,000 followers. This is a superb podcast with learning and idealism and decency behind it. I recommend it to all students of American history, young and old. Well, thank you ever so much. I can't imagine a warmer and more important endorsement. And welcome, Kern fans, to our happy band of listeners. Although I imagine any of you who have stuck with it or listening to the Admiral of the Ocean Sea episodes right now or maybe involved with Cabeza de Vaca and won't hear this until the winter wanes and the flowers bloom. Friendly reminder that if you use Twitter, you can follow me. I put the handle in the show notes, or you can search for the History of the Americans on Twitter. Trust me when I say that you should not, however, take up scrolling Twitter just to follow me. I want to reduce the anxiety in the world, not add to it. Okay, another thing. I've gotten some emails and Twitter comments on my pronunciation of Powhatan, suggesting that the emphasis on the second syllable is both wrong and grating, that the correct pronunciation is Powhatan. So far, all these complainants self-identify as Virginians. They have a point, and I must say I've been around long enough to know that it is never good policy to irritate Virginians. I've long known this is a treacherous subject. My grandfather, who is Born in Swanee, Tennessee, to a Virginian family in 1901, always said, Powhatan, or something like that. And so did I for the first several decades of my life. I might well have gone that way on the podcast, and maybe I should have. If you listen to various YouTube videos of people in eastern Virginia talking about the great chief, they now pronounce it a bit less southern, more like Powhatan. Not wanting to blow it, I dug around a bit and found sources that suggested that the original pronunciation was closer to Powhatan. Although in looking closer, I haven't found anything that's a slam dunk either way. Of course, one can never derive what ought from what is. That the Algonquin pronunciation might have been closer to Powhatan than Powhatan does not mean that those of us who are not Algonquin speakers should pronounce it that way. We don't call Paris, Paris, or Germany, Deutschland. So why try to go with Powhatan? Well, there is an academic trend that drives our popular culture, and that is the notion that we, it is never quite obvious who we is, should decolonize the language. One aspect of decolonizing language is to use names and pronunciations as the indigenous peoples did or would have done, rather than as John Smith or Richard Hacklite or my beloved grandfather might have done. Of course, the scholars who are all in for decolonization would not even describe Virginia as Virginia, but as Senecomica, which was the word for the region used by the tribes of the Powhatan Confederacy. 
And you already know that such historians usually refer to the paramount chief Powhatan, Powhatan, as Wahoon Senecock, and his daughter Pocahontas, which was a nickname as Matoica. Pressed by irritated Virginians, I then put up an online poll of the question on Twitter and tagged it for hashtag Twitter historians. Out of 29 respondents, 69 said to pronounce it Powhatan, and 31% Powhatan. I view this result as amusing to report, but completely meaningless. Further digging yielded a speech by President Trump in which he rhymed the chief's name with Manhattan. This strikes me as even less probative than a Twitter poll with 29 responses, although I suppose it might polarize the pronunciation of the great chief's name for hyper-online partisans of either stripe. Hey, maybe pronouncing Powhatan incorrectly cost Donald Trump Virginia. At the risk of getting yelled at by all sides, I'm neither for pronouncing Indian names just as my grandfather would have pronounced them simply because he pronounced them that way, nor am I for bending over backwards to decolonize language just because some of my ancestors won an existential war over other of my ancestors. My standard is far less principled. I use the words that make it easiest for people of good faith to understand this podcast, which is an audio presentation rather than a document to be read. My listeners would lose something if I performatively labored through Senecomica every time I met a part of Tidewater, Virginia, or Wahoon Senecock every time I met Paramount Chief Powhatan, or Powhatan. Five episodes along, of course, I'm a bit committed to Powhatan. If I thought it were wildly wrong, I would switch pronunciations right now and maybe even go back and re-record those last five episodes. But Powhatan seems to be a well-understood pronunciation, even if irritating to Virginians. It would be weird to switch midstream, and it would be a lot of work to go back and edit every use of Powhatan, Powhatan, in the episodes that are already in the can. My best option is to keep marching forward until I get out of these woods. Fortunately for me, Powhatan is going to die soon, and nobody has complained about my pronunciation of Opakankana, defective as it no doubt is, which is good, because he's going to live until 1644. I am therefore hoping against hope my Virginian listeners will cut me some slack on this one and merely encourage me to do better. We are pivoting to the far northeast of the United States, following the great explorer Samuel de Champlain through the region on his various expeditions. Champlain is much more recognized in the history of Canada than the United States, but he came into the United States more often and with more direct consequence than, say, Francis Drake, boom, Verrazano, Tristan de Luna, or lots of other fellows to whom attention must also be paid. Champlain's impact echoes today to a greater degree than most of those others, perhaps Drake accepted, and not only because his name survives on that important lake. He laid the foundation for New France, and it was through his efforts that it became a self-sustaining enterprise. The French presence in North America, made possible by Champlain more than anybody else, 
would influence the history of the Americans until the present day. One tiny example, tiny example, the Cajun population of Louisiana, which has manifestly had an outsized impact on the culture of the United States, probably would not have arisen in Acadia and therefore would not have been expelled from it if it weren't for Champlain's years of work on the St. Lawrence and the Maritime Provinces of Canada and in the Northeastern United States. I'll get to the Great Expulsion eventually, God willing, but in the meantime, you can go look it up on Wikipedia. My primary source for these episodes is David Hackett Fisher's biography, Champlain's Dream, published in 2008. It is fantastically detailed and beautifully written, and I highly recommend it. Fisher's introduction sets the stage for Champlain very well, and it includes a couple of digressions on the practice of history and the problem of presentism, which are worth passing along in and of themselves. So we'll get a little controversy in here as well. This episode, therefore, is a bit of a cheat. I'm going to read most of that introduction with a little bit of my own commentary woven in, sort of as I did with the introduction to Queen Elizabeth uh, last summer. Here we go, David Hackett Fisher. An old French engraving survives from the early 17th century. It is a battle print, at first glance like many others in European print shops. We look again and discover that it shows a battle in North America, fought between Indian nations four centuries ago. The caption reads in Old French, The Defeat of the Iroquois at Lake Champlain, July 30th, 1609. On one side, we see 60 Huron, Algonquin, and Montagnier warriors. On the other, 200 Iroquois of the Mohawk Nation. They meet in an open field beside the lake. The smaller force is attacking boldly, though outnumbered three to one. The Mohawk have sailed from a log fort to meet them. By reputation, they are among the most formidable warriors in North America. They have the advantage of numbers and position, and yet the caption tells us that the smaller force won the fight. The print offers an explanation in the presence of a small figure who stands alone in the center of the battle. His dress reveals that he is a French soldier and a man of rank. He wears half armor of high quality, a well-fitted curious on his upper body, and protective breeches of the latest design with light steel plates on his thighs. His helmet is no crude iron pod of the kind that we associate with Spanish conquistadors and English colonists. It is an elegant example of a Burgundian helmet of distinctive design that was the choice of kings and noblemen. A handsome, high-crowned helmet with a comb and a helm forged from a single piece of metal. Above the helmet is a large plume of white feathers called a panache. That's the origin of our modern word. Its color identifies the wearer as a captain in the service of Henry IV, first Bourbon King of France. Its size marks it as a badge of courage worn to make its wearer visible in battle. This captain is not a big man. Even with his panache, the Indians appear half a head taller. But he has a striking presence, and in the middle of a wild melee, he stands still and quiet, firmly in command of himself. His back is straight as a ramrod. 
His muscular legs are splayed apart and firmly planted to bear the weight of a weapon he holds at full length. It is not a conventional matchlock, as historians have written, but a complex and very costly wheel-lock arquebus. It was the first self-igniting shoulder weapon that did not require a burning match and could fire as many as four balls in a single shot. The text of this engraving tells us that the French captain has already fired his arquebus and brought down two Mohawk chiefs and a third warrior who lie on the ground before him. He aims his weapon at a fourth Mohawk, and we see the captain fire again in a cloud of white smoke. On the far side of the battlefield, half hidden in the American forest, two French arquebusiers emerge from the trees. They kneel and fire their weapons into the flank of the dense Iroquois formation. We look back at the French captain and catch a glimpse of his face. He has a high forehead, arched brows, eyes set wide apart, a straight nose, turned up at the tip, a fashionable mustache, and a beard trimmed like that of his king, Henry IV. The key below the print gives us his name, the Sieur de Champlain. This small image is the only authentic likeness of Samuel de Champlain that is known to survive from his own time. It is also a self-portrait, and its technique tells us other things about the man who drew it. A French scholar observes that its style is that of a man of action, direct, natural, naive, biased toward exact description, toward the concrete and the useful. This is art without a hint of artifice. It tells a story in a straightforward way. At the same time, it expresses the artist's pride in his acts and confidence in his purpose. It also points up a paradox in what we know about him. It describes his actions in detail, but the man himself is covered in armor, and his face is partly hidden by his own hand. Other images of Champlain would be invented after the fact, many years later. When he was recognized as the father of New France, he was thought to require a proper portrait. Artists and sculptors were quick to supply a growing market. Few faces in modern history have been reinvented so often and from so little evidence. All these images are fictions. The most widely reproduced was a fraud detected many years ago and still used more frequently than any other. Historians also contributed many word portraits of Champlain, and no two are alike. His biographer Morris Bishop asserted from little evidence that Champlain was, in fact, a lean ascetic type, dry and dark, probably rather under than over normal size. His southern origin is indication enough of dark hair and black eyes. Another biographer, Samuel Elliott Morrison, wrote from no evidence whatsoever. As one who has lived with Champlain for many years, I may be permitted to give my own idea of him. A well-built man of medium stature, blonde and bearded. A natural leader who inspired loyalty and commanded obedience. A third author, Heather Hudak, represented him with bright red hair, a black panache, and chartreuse breeches. Playwright Michael Hollingsworth described Champlain as prematurely gray, as well he might have been, and an anonymous engraver gave him snow white hair. Champlain's biographies, like his portraits, show the same wealth of invention and poverty of fact.
Champlain himself was largely responsible for that. He wrote thousands of pages about what he did, but only a very few words about who he was. His published works are extraordinary for an extreme reticence about his origins, inner thoughts, private life, and personal feelings. Rarely has an author written so much and revealed so little about himself. These were not casual omissions, but studied silences. Here again, as in the old battle print, Champlain was hidden by his own hand. He was silent and even secretive about the most fundamental facts of his life. He never mentioned his age. His birth date is uncertain. Little information survives about his family and not a word about his schooling. He was raised in an age of faith, but we do not know if he was baptized Protestant or Catholic. After all this uncertainty about the man himself, it is a relief to turn to the record of his acts. Here we have an abundance of evidence, and it makes a drama that is unique in the history of exploration. No other discoverer mastered so many roles over so long a time, and each of them presents a puzzle. By profession, Champlain was a soldier, and he chose to represent himself that way in his self-portrait. He fought in Europe, the Caribbean, and North America bore the scars of wounds on his face and body, and witnessed atrocities beyond imagining. Like many old soldiers, he took pride in his military service, but he grew weary of war. Always he kept a soldier's creed of honor, courage, and duty, but increasingly did so in the cause of peace. There's a question about how he squared these thoughts. At the same time, Champlain was a mariner of long experience, He went to sea at an early age and rose from ship's boy to admiral of a colonizing fleet. From 1599 to 1633, he made at least 27 Atlantic crossings and hundreds of other voyages. He never lost a ship under his command except once when he was a passenger aboard a sinking bark in a heavy gale on a lee shore with a captain who was unable to act. Champlain seized command set the mainsail, and deliberately drove her high on a rocky coast in a raging storm and saved every man aboard. Champlain is best remembered for his role as an explorer. He developed a method of close-in coastal exploration that he called ferreting, and he used it to study thousands of miles of the American coast from Panama to Labrador. He also explored much of North America through what are now six Canadian provinces and five American states. He was the first European to see much of this countryside, and he enabled us to see it through his eyes. Champlain also mapped this vast area in yet another role as cartographer. He put himself in the forefront of geographic knowledge in his era. His many maps and charts set a new standard for accuracy and detail. Experts have studied them with amazement. They wonder how he made maps of such excellence with the crude instruments at his command. He also embellished his maps with handsome drawings. In his own time, he was known as an artist. When rival French merchants opposed his appointment to high office, they complained that Champlain was a mere painter and therefore unfit for command. In his drawings, he left us a visual record of the New World, which alone would make him an important figure. To study the few originals is to discover the skill and refinement of his art, but nearly all his art survives only in crude copies that challenge us to recover the spirit of his work. 
Small aside from me, recall that Francis Drake was also an accomplished artist, and he made that famous map of the world for Elizabeth, which burned in the Whitehall fire of the 1660s. Champlain was a prolific writer. He is most accessible to us through his published books, which exceed in quantity and quality the work of every major explorer of North America during his day. A closer second was the work of Captain John Smith, but Champlain's published writings were larger in bulk. They covered a broader area, spanned a longer period, and drew deeply on the intellectual currents of the age. The problem is to find the mind behind the prose. In his book, Champlain played a role as pioneer ethnographer. He left an abundance of firsthand description about many Indian nations in North America. During the late 20th century, some scholars criticized him for ethnocentrism. That judgment is correct in some ways, but Champlain's work remains a major source of sympathetic description. A challenging problem is to sort out truth from error. He was also a naturalist. Champlain loved plants and animals, gathered information about the flora and fauna of the New World, and studied the climate and resources of the places he visited. He planted experimental gardens in four colonies and did much descriptive writing about the American environment before European settlement and how it changed. Especially important to his posterity was Champlain's role as a founder and leader of the first permanent French settlements in North America. A major part of his life was his economic association with many trading companies that paid for New France. This was Champlain's most difficult role and his least successful. Wealthy investors often defeated him, and many companies failed. But in his stewardship, New France somehow survived three decades of failure, which is not only an unknown, but a mystery. Through these same three decades, from 1603 to 1635, Champlain also returned to France in most years. He had another busy career as a courtier and a tireless promoter of his American project. Four people ruled France in that era, Henry IV until 1610, Marie de Medici as queen regent after 1610, Louis XIII from 1617, and Richelieu as first minister from 1624. Champlain worked directly with all, except the Queen Regent, argued vigorously for New France, and prodded them so forcefully that one wonders how he stayed out of the Bastille. During that long period, six highborn French noblemen and princes of the blood served as lieutenant general or viceroy or cardinal admiral of New France. All but one of them were absentees who never came to America— Each of them, without exception, chose Champlain to be his chief lieutenant and commander in the New World. He got on with all those very difficult people. One of Champlain's most important roles was in the peopling of New France. For some reason, the French have always been less likely to emigrate than were millions of British, Germans, and other Europeans. And yet in 30 years, Champlain did more than any other leader to establish three French-speaking populations and start them growing in North America. In a pivotal moment from 1632 to 1635, when he was acting governor, they suddenly began to expand by sustained natural increase, and they have continued to do so even to our own time. Champlain had a leading hand in that, 
and even subsidized marriages and families with his own wealth. Each of these three populations developed its own distinct culture and speech ways, which have made them Quebecois, Acadian, and Matisse. Today, their descendants have multiplied to millions of people, something of Champlain's time survives in their language and folkways. They are chief among his many legacies. Champlain also played a role in the religious history of New France. He worked with Protestant ministers, Catholic priests, Recollets, Jesuits, and Capuchins. His Christian faith was deeply important to him, increasingly so as he grew older, but he struggled to reconcile an ideal of tolerance with the reality of an established church, a problem that he never solved. If nothing else, his life was a record of stamina with few equals. But always it was more than that. Champlain was a dreamer. He was a man of vision, and like most visionaries, he dreamed of many things. Several scholars have written about his dream of finding a passage to China. Others have written of his dream for the colonization in New France. But all those visions were part of a larger dream that has not been studied. This war-weary soldier had a dream of humanity and peace in a world of cruelty and violence. He envisioned a new world as a place where people of different cultures could live together in amity and concord. This became his grand design for North America. Champlain was not a solitary dreamer. He moved within several circles of French humanists during the late 16th and early 17th centuries. They are neglected figures of much importance in the history of ideas, bridge figures who inherited the Renaissance and inspired the Enlightenment. They were not of one mind, but they had large purposes in common. One group of French humanists centered on the person of Henry IV and were guided by his great example. Another was an American circle in Paris who never crossed the Atlantic, but were inspired by the idea of the New World. In a third group were many French humanists who came to North America with Champlain. In the beginning, they were his leaders. By the end, he became theirs. Champlain traveled in other circles among the leaders of Indian nations, who were also great dreamers. He knew them intimately, and they live as individuals in the pages of his books. Champlain had a way of getting along with very different people, and he also had the rarest gift of all. In long years of labor, he found a way to convert his dreams into realities. In the face of great obstacles and heavy defeats, he exercised his skills of leadership in extreme conditions. Those of us who are leaders today, which includes most of us in an open society, have something to learn from him about that. Champlain was a leader, but he was not a saint. We do not need another work of hagiography about him. He was a mortal man of flesh and blood, a very complicated man. He made horrific errors in his career, and some of his mistakes cost other men their lives. He cultivated an easy manner, but sometimes he drove his men so hard that four of them tried to murder him. His quest for amity and concord with the Indians led to wars with the Mohawk and the Onondaga. His private life was deeply troubled, particularly in his relations with women. Champlain lived comfortably as a man among men, but one discovery eluded this great discoverer. He never found the way to a woman's heart. 
It was not for want of trying. He was strongly attracted to women, but his most extended relationship ended in frustration. His ideal of humanity was very large, but it was also limited in strange, ironic ways. Champlain embraced the American Indians, but not his own French servants. He had deep flaws and made many enemies, responded badly to criticism, and could be very petty to rivals. But other men who knew this man wrote of him with respect and affection. Even his enemies did so. Just now, we have an opportunity to study this extraordinary man in a new light. In the early 21st century, three nations are celebrating the 400th anniversary of his achievements. Something similar happened in the early 20th century for his 300th anniversary. The literature about Champlain is like a century plant. It blooms every hundred years and then fades and blooms again. At the start of the 20th century, a very large literature ran heavily to hagiography and celebrated Champlain as a saintly figure. After 1950, the inevitable reaction set in. Popular debunkers and academic iconoclasts made Champlain a favorite target. These attacks were deepened by a fin de siècle attitude called political correctness with its revulsion against great white men, especially empire builders, colonial founders, and discoverers. Back to me. It bears repeating that Fisher wrote this in 2008, and there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. You will see that Fisher had hopes that the fin de siècle phenomenon of political correctness, as he called it, was waning rather than waxing. On the surface, at least, that was no doubt the case, but by the fall of 2015, everything had changed again. That year saw the dramatic return of national controversies over speech on campus, generalizing rather aggressively, so please cut me some slack here. These controversies pitted activists and intellectuals who put enormous significance on the political impact of words against old-school classical liberals who believed in scholarship in search of truth above all. Fisher wrote the next few paragraphs in the gap between the old 90s political correctness and the new rise of critical theorists and scholar activists. That is why this next bit is, in Fisher's terms, hopeful, when indeed things were about to get much more political, at least from his perspective. To put it differently, but in terms that long-standing and attentive listeners will understand, Fisher had hoped that the long trend toward usable history was turning. It turns out that it had only paused. Back to Fisher. Incredibly, some apostles of political correctness even tried to ban the word discovery itself. Historian Peter Pope met this attitude on the 500th anniversary of John Cabot's Northern Voyages of Discovery. He recalls, quote, I was asked by a servant of the PR industry in June 1996 to summarize Cabot's achievement without using the term discovery. She told me it had been banned. Any talk of discovery is understood as an endorsement of conquest. Pope was ordered to describe what the Venetian pilot did without using the D word. As these attitudes spread widely during the late 20th century, Champlain began to fade from the historical literature. He all but disappeared from school curricula in France, Canada, and the United States. Many will remember him, but when the subject came up in France, we heard people say, Connais pas, never heard of him. In the United States, one person asked, Champlain, why are you writing a book about a lake? 
1999, Canadian historian W.J. Eccles wrote that, quote, there is no good biography of Champlain. Since the turn of the 21st century, attitudes have been changing yet again. Historians are returning to the study of leaders in general and to Champlain in particular. They built on the foundation of a new historiography that had been growing quietly since the 1960s through all the sturm and drang of political correctness. Archaeological research has been taking place on an unprecedented scale. A new historical ethnography has deepened our understanding of Champlain's relations with the Indians. I'm now going to skip over some of the detail on that. Resuming Fisher. The new scholarship of the early 21st century is becoming more mature, more global, more balanced, more empirical, more eclectic, and less ideological than before. Me again, this is one of the things that's changed dramatically in just the 14 years since Fisher wrote this. Back to Fisher. A result of this new scholarship has been to undercut the writings of iconoclasts. Two generations ago, the dominant source for Champlain's life was his own writing, which inspired skepticism. Today, in every chapter of his life, we can test his own accounts against the evidence of archaeology, archival materials, other narratives, complex chronologies, and interlocking sources in great variety. Many small errors and some larger ones have been found in Champlain's work, but the main lines of his writings have been reinforced by other evidence. An example is René Baudray, who writes of Champlain, quote, It is much to his credit that information from other sources almost always confirm the accuracy of his accounts. In this recent work, old methods are being used in new ways. One of them is the method of Herodotus and his idea of history as a genuinely free and open inquiry, the literal Greek meaning of history. Another way forward was the school that taught historians three lessons about their work. First, go there, do it, then write it. To read Champlain's many books in that spirit... To explore the places that he described and to follow in his track is to make an astonishing discovery about our own world. Many of the places that Champlain described in the 17th century can still be seen today, not precisely as he saw them, but some of them are remarkably little changed. This is so in large parts of the St. Lawrence Valley and the magnificent Saguenay River. It is so along the Atlantic coast, the Gulf of Maine, the forests and waterways of Canada, the harbors of Acadia, and the coast of the Gaspé Peninsula. It is so in the United States on Mount Desert Island and Ticonderoga. It is that way again in the rolling ground of the Onondaga country and the natural meadowlands of Cap Tormont. This book seeks a path of understanding between hagiographers on the one hand and iconoclasts on the other. In that regard, one of the most important opportunities of this inquiry is for us to get right with both Champlain and the American Indians. Two generations ago, historians wrote of European saints and Indian savages. In the last generation, too many scholars have been writing about Indian saints and European savages. The opportunity for our generation is to go beyond that calculus of saints and savages altogether— and write about both American Indians and Europeans with maturity, empathy, and understanding. Many historians are now doing that, and this book is another effort in that direction. 
After the delusions of political correctness, ideological rage, multiculturalism, postmodernism, historical relativism, and the more extreme forms of academic cynicism, historians today are returning to the foundation of their discipline with a new faith in the possibility of historical knowledge and with new results. Again, I'm not very sure that that's true 14 years after Fisher wrote this. This inquiry is conceived in that spirit. It begins not with a thesis or a theory or an ideology, but with a set of open questions about Champlain. It asks, who was this man? Where did he come from? What did he do? Why did he do it? What difference did he make? Why should we care? The answers to all these questions make a story. It begins where Champlain began, in a small town on the coast of France, looking outward across the Bay of Biscay toward America. Back to me. I hope this background gives you a sense of Champlain. Next week, we will dive into the part of his adventure that touched today's United States. It's a story of undaunted courage and no little genius. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.